0: When I was first asked to do this series, about the great Spanish writer Cervantes, I was told we should probably also do an episode about Shakespeare. Which I didn't get at first. Why would we want to be talking about the great English writer? Because, I was told, Shakespeare and Cervantes died in the same week. Oh. And then of course, it's the sort of thing that makes me think. These guys, around at the same time, in more or less the same end of the world, Both of them, writers who kind of defined their country's language. Both of them try to make it as a playwright. Both of them live through the ups and the downs of both their countries, through wars, and through peace. So, it's the sort of thing that makes me wonder. What links are there between Cervantes and Shakespeare? Are they like, parallel lines? These two things that are close forever, but never touch? In this installment... We're going through some of the life of each man. Cervantes and Shakespeare, do their parallel lives ever touch? I don't think there'll be an interesting moral in Cervantes' literary career or Shakespeare's burial plot, but it is really interesting to have a look at these big chunks of their lives, especially their early lives, and see how just trying to make it as a writer affected them so differently. So
1: for this episode, we've got our Cervantes expert.
2: I'm Vicente Pérez de León, and I'm senior lecturer at the University of Melbourne. And our Shakespeare expert.
1: I'm Penny Gay. I'm a retired professor of English at the University of Sydney. I specialize in Shakespeare, particularly in the history of performing the plays.
0: But I think it would be easier if we start at the point where their lives really seem to converge. You know, not on the page or the stage. Instead, the week they both died. This is the Two Quixotes for the Instituto Cervantes in Sydney. I'm Sasha Rosen. 400 years ago, April 22nd, 1616, Miguel de Cervantes died. 400 years ago, April 23rd, 1616, William Shakespeare died. About two weeks ago, in Sydney, at the State Library of New South Wales, on April 23rd, they held a special day for Shakespeare. Shakespeare, 400. You know what's going on today?
1: Well, it's the 400th anniversary.
0: It's the date that is thought to be the day that he died on. The birth and the death happens to be registered at about the same time of year, so we sort of like to think that the 23rd of April is the day. I'm Andy.
3: I'm Colleen. I'm Helena. It's the 400th anniversary of the birth and death of Shakespeare. We're having an amazing celebration here at the State Library.
0: You've been running an information booth here today. Have people been very interested in Shakespeare today?
3: Oh yes, they've all heard about it. They want to see the Shakespeare room, the folios that we have on display. Has
0: Cervantes had a lot of attention today?
3: Not so much.
0: Do you know who Cervantes is?
3: Not really. Vaguely. Mm. Not really. I'm Sharon. I'm Katie.
0: When was the last time you guys actually read Shakespeare?
3: This morning. (laughs) Yeah, this morning.
0: Do you think Shakespeare is intimidating?
3: No. No. I was reading his sonnets and they're definitely not. No, I was just back to Midsummer Night's Dream, and that's definitely not...
0: If you had to, say, pick between Cervantes and Shakespeare, yeah, who would you choose? Shakespeare. Well, naturally, i choose Shakespeare. I'm extremely biased,
3: being from Stratford-upon-Avon. Oh, Shakespeare. Shakespeare. Because we're pretty big Shakespeare nerds. Yeah, we tend to go to a lot of performances together.
0: Helena was doing information on the day for the Friends Room. That room hosts most of the library's special Don Quixote collection.
3: We have reminded people that it's the 400th anniversary of Cervantes.
0: Speaking as someone who has spent today and many days doing a podcast on Cervantes, do you get a lot of really blank stares when you tell people about Cervantes and Don Quixote in Australia?
3: Yes, sometimes, yes. But a lot of people do tend to know something about Don Quixote because it's such an amazing fable. First they'll look at the bookcases, they'll peer in, you see them take a step to the left or the right and peer in again, and then again, and then in amazement. And that's when they go, hey, how come they're all the same book?
0: If you had to pick Shakespeare or Cervantes?
3: Shakespeare, simply because I've had so much more exposure. My husband is Spanish, so I do love Cervantes as
1: well.
0: And that's probably the same for me if I'm honest with myself. Shakespeare in English and Cervantes in Spanish occupy a similar position and with English as my first language, I think Shakespeare has probably had a bigger influence on my life than Cervantes. But the more you learn about each of them, the more it makes you wonder about how close each of their lives were, or how far apart. Which brings us to 1616, to a single week when Cervantes and Shakespeare both died. On paper, they died a day apart. Cervantes on April 22nd, Shakespeare on April 23rd. In practice, Each country operated on a slightly different version of the modern calendar, so it was actually more like a week. Cervantes was an old man, 17 years older than Shakespeare. In the particular case of
2: Cervantes, we're looking at a 69-year-old man. He was handicapped, so he was being assisted by this congregation of nuns in Madrid. He had been a veteran in war, and he had a very spiritual life. But at the same time, he didn't have a lot of money, and he probably didn't have a lot of attention when he died. Cervantes still had family when he died. He had probably a very quiet life at the end of his life. He still had some friends in the literary world. He wanted to be sure how he wanted to be remembered.
0: So he was aware that he was famous and he would have a legacy at this point. Absolutely. But he was also, unlike Shakespeare, he was not rich and nobody really noticed what he was doing.
2: Absolutely. Both things at the same time. There are two paintings that are supposed to portray Cervantes. They are the only ones extant. The description that we have from himself is very late at his life, it's very realistic. He doesn't praise himself as a physical talent. He's showing an old man lacking some teeth and things like that with a handicap on one arm. So he's not trying to show like he's a superhero like Don Quixote. We have a good picture of Shakespeare
0: too. It's a bust of him, mounted above his grave on the wall of a church in his hometown, Stratford-on-Avon.
1: It's a bust of Shakespeare who looks like a very ordinary, balding, slightly portly member of the town council. Shakespeare is definitely portly. I think he's more like a merchant of some sort he certainly doesn't look handsome and the fascinating thing is that efforts have been made over the last particularly 20 years to say this that or the other is a portrait of the young shakespeare and they're always incredibly sexy and gorgeous and you think nah nah it's not him he was an ordinary looking bloke with an amazing mind he dies about 52 yeah he was 52 yeah and that's actually quite long-lived it's not bad it's better than the average Shakespeare is a retired gentleman living at Stratford-on-Avon, which is the town that he was born in, but he's now living in one of the poshest houses in Stratford. He's been able to buy that with the money that he's made from his successful career as a playwright. Shakespeare had retired to Stratford-on-Avon probably around 1612, 1613, He'd been able to do that because he'd been such a successful playwright in London and made a good deal of money and was able to buy one of the very best houses in Stratford to live out his last years.
0: Shakespeare is so successful that he seems to have had a curse engraved right over his grave, under that bust in the church.
1: We don't know if it was written by Shakespeare. It certainly sounds as though it was written by Shakespeare. And it says, Good friend, for Jesus' sake... Forbear to dig the dust and close it here. Blessed be the man that spares these stones, and cursed be he that moves my bones. He knew that he was an important person and that people might want to be disturbing his grave. I think it's one of the most extraordinary things about Shakespeare, this curse. I guess we're used to the extraordinary nature of the 37 plays and all the poems. They are just amazing. But this little touch of humanity in the retired gentleman in Stratford saying, OK, I may be retired, but I'm still that bloke. I'm still that man, Shakespeare. And you are not digging me up, mate.
0: Shakespeare wasn't always so notable. As so many people like to point out, Shakespeare was born into a poor tradie family.
1: Shakespeare was born in Stratford-on-Avon in 1564. He was the son of a very well-to-do glove maker. It was a terrific profession because of it was luxury goods. Right, maybe not so poor. It was goods for the gentry, like an iPhone. Everybody needed gloves, but if you were going to church, if you wanted to dress well, you needed to have leather gloves. Shakespeare's dad was a prosperous citizen, He, in fact, eventually became the equivalent of mayor. What follows from that is that it means his sons, and there were four Shakespeare boys altogether, would have free education at the grammar school. And the grammar school is still there in Stratford-on-Avon too. That means that Shakespeare would have had a really good boys' education in basically Latin and Greek and a bit of mathematics and a bit of astronomy and that sort of thing. The notion that Shakespeare was some sort of illiterate tradesman's son just doesn't stack up.
0: One of the first events we know about in Shakespeare's adult life is his marriage at 18.
1: Shakespeare married Anne Hathaway in 1582. She was already pregnant with their first child. A pair of twins was born in 1584. Look, there's no question it was a shotgun wedding, though these were more common back in the Elizabethan period than our 20th century prudish sensibilities allow. And I say 20th century specifically because, of course, now in the 21st century, nobody much cares. Once you were betrothed as a couple, you could have sex. And the marriage was just the religious formalisation. For all we know, they had performed a ceremony called hand fasting, whereby in front of a witness they would say, I take you as my betrothed wife or husband. We can assume there was no shotgun involved, that they had already made their private vows in front of just one witness. Shakespeare probably had a full head of hair at 18? I reckon, just given standard male patent development. I think he probably thought he was a pretty good-looking fella and that he could wow the girls and he got Anne Hathaway into bed. His twins were born in 1585, so that's the last date we've got for Shakespeare's presence in Stratford until he returns to Stratford at the end of his career.
0: Cervantes' early
2: life was a little bit less settled than Shakespeare's. He had a very, very agitated life. Cervantes was born in 1547. He was born in Alcalá de Henares, which is a small town around Madrid. I think we're probably middle class. His father, Rodrigo, was a doctor. They had to move around because of the father's job. His education was really interesting because he was, we know for sure, he was educated in Madrid by López de Hoyos, who was a humanist. López de Hoyos was the administrator and academic, and he was kind of a historian in his times. He mastered Latin and probably Greek, and definitely his Spanish was super. So after he was a student of Lope de Hoyos, he travelled to Rome. In Italy, we know that he stayed for one year. He served the Cardinal Aquaviva in Rome. Many scholars think that Italy was the centre of artistic and academic and intellectual world at that time. Helping this cardinal, he probably was exposed to all this high culture. Shakespeare's first big trip was somewhere a little
1: closer to home. Shakespeare is then heard of in London in 1592 as one of the players meaning an actor in what was to become the top company the king's men though it was at that time simply a smaller company but it was a good company burbage who ran it was a really good businessman he knew what the public wanted shakespeare is starting to try and write plays a local scurrilous journal called him an upstart crow There is a really interesting gap in Shakespeare's early life between 1584 and 1592. The speculation surrounding what Shakespeare might have done in those years of his early young manhood is absolutely fascinating. My two favourite theories, and they are only theories, there's circumstantial evidence only. Up until the age of 18, he's been hanging out around Stratford-on-Avon possibly going north. One of the theories is that he went and taught his Greek and Latin in a Catholic great house in Lancashire, which is a Catholic stronghold. It's an interesting theory. There's some circumstantial evidence. My favourite is that he travelled in Italy with a group of travelling players, and he knows a part of Italy extremely well. His references in his plays to the geography and topography of the sort of northern part of Italy from Milan across to Venice uh, through the Veneto is extraordinarily accurate. There is no evidence other than what you can deduce from the place. The standard let's not be romantic argument says of course Shakespeare would have heard all these stories from the sailors and the seamen who were around the pubs on the South Bank. I think If you're free and easy and you're sending money back home to your wife and three kids, which I presume he is doing, why not go travelling and explore this world which he's already found so stimulating to his imagination?
0: So after Shakespeare circumstantially went to Italy, or didn't, he went to London, started acting, wrote some plays. After Cervantes went to Italy, he went into battle. This particular battle had been brewing for quite a while. Europe was being challenged by the Ottomans. That is, a huge empire controlled by the place we now call Turkey. These Ottomans were Muslim, their ruler, a sultan.
2: The other side was Christian Catholic. Spain together with Venice and the Vatican.
0: The Vatican is its own country right now.
2: Yes. So all these three superpowers, is what is called is the Holy League. Venice, Spain and the Vatican got together and created this big armada to fight the sultan. You've probably heard of the Spanish armada. This wasn't that armada. This was a different Spanish armada. It's a different one, yeah. The other one would fail to attack England. It was a different story later on. What Cervantes does is in 1571, he fought in Lepanto. It's a big battle against the Turks. I think it's considered the biggest naval battle in history before the Second World War. The battle was really tight, but in the end, the technology of the Spanish ships were able to give the victory to the Holy League.
0: Cervantes was in the middle of all of this, this massive naval battle, and it was huge.
2: Rows and rows of ships
0: lined up fighting each other, and he got hurt.
2: He was injuring his arm. It was probably part of a cannonball or something like that. He became handicapped, but he was able to survive. And even later on, even if he was injured, he also fought in 1572 with Juan de Astria, who was a big general in Spain. He stayed a little bit in Naples. And when he was returning to Spain in 1575, he was captured by some pirates in northern Africa when he was very close to Catalonia in northern Spain. And this is a point where Shakespeare's
0: life can't really compete for excitement. If we're looking for who had the most straight-up adventure, Cervantes was captured by pirates.
2: I don't think it would be like a Johnny Depp-style pirate. There was a mini states, sort the city states in Northern Africa, where some people were attracted to the kind of life they offered. So there were Christians, renegades, who lived there and worked for them. What you did in Lepanto is stopping a real invasion and take over Europe, but not the kind of everyday pirate challenge that continued. They were good at what they're doing because they captured ships, they get their money or gold, and they got an economy going on. Some of the critics of Cervantes' works claim that Cervantes has some kind of positive view of some of the aspects of their life as a prisoner. Because he had more freedom, maybe, than he had in Spain. But even though there might have been some positives, Cervantes still tried to escape and failed four times. Cervantes would introduce this experience into two drama plays about being prisoner in Algiers. And he has one chapter in Don Quixote Part 1 about a captive in Algiers. Rui Perez de Viedma, who is a character in Don Quixote Part 1, who goes to Algiers and escapes.
0: There is a problem with Ruiz's story, as autobiography goes, though, because Ruiz escapes successfully and Cervantes doesn't seem to manage that. No,
2: you're right. Uh, Cervantes' brother does, but he doesn't escape. Cervantes is not able to escape. He tries four times. The first one was in 1576, the second one was in 1577, and at the same time his brother Rodrigo was being liberated. The third one was in 1578, and the fourth one in 1579. So he was really, really active. There are not many details about that. What people look at is the chapter of Don Quixote. The description of the attempts there were about buying this person, paying this person who had a boat, things like that. I guess everything had a price in that place. Kidnapping for ransom
0: back then was a thing you did with a specialized organization. Even today, when people get kidnapped, it's often that way. So equally, back home in Spain, there was a specialized organization for getting people out of being kidnapped.
2: Spain had NGOs like the Trinitary Fathers. These Trinitary Fathers were going around Spain asking for money to liberate these people. Same way today you can give money to the education of this specific person in this country with a name and all that. The Trinitary Fathers could say, look, this money is to liberate this great man, Cervantes. Finally, Cervantes was liberated with money. Probably his family contributed as much as they could, but you know, there were some limits because it was a lot of money. Five years is a long time.
0: But that much time in a place like Algiers gave Cervantes a
2: sort of multicultural experience he might never have had. Algiers was different to Spain. For example, there was Muslim here, this Jews here, this Christian here, whereas in Spain there was more, everything should be Catholic. I think that experience could open his mind in terms of looking at things in a different way. His mind was much more open than the fiction that is in other authors in his period. Usually veterans in war try to get the favor of the king in order to get some kind of salaries. As he returned to Madrid in 1580, only five years after he returned, he wrote his first poetic novel, Galatea. It was not like Don Quixote, but this novel put Cervantes in the map in terms of the literary world. I think it was a good move for a young writer. Obviously, a handicapped man who was a very good writer, but he still had to prove it. He needed another way of getting a living. So at this time is when maybe the connection with Shakespeare. In 1587, there was this preparation for the big armada against England. This is related to Cervantes' straight because Cervantes was like a tax collector for the preparation of the Armada.
0: This was that Spanish Armada, the famous one with Francis Drake and burning ships.
1: The English and the Spaniards were having difficult relations for a good deal of the 16th century, basically because the Spaniards were Catholics and the English had gone Protestant. Um... And the Spanish king thought it was his duty to convert England back to Catholicism. And one way of doing that would be, of course, eventually to marry the queen, Elizabeth. One of the reasons Elizabeth didn't marry Philip II of Spain was because she was a very proud defender of English Protestantism. She flirted with Philip, of course, or with the idea of marrying him, because it was good for diplomacy.
0: But, of course, she never really did marry him. And Philip, king of Spain, builds himself an armada, which is to say, a really big fleet of ships.
2: Part of the armada thing was related also to the attacks that Spain was receiving. As Spain was very friendly with Ireland, because they were Catholics, The British were good friends with Portugal, kind of allies, depending on the time period. British ships were easily getting through Portugal and attacking Cadiz. That's where the big ships from America were coming from. And that was a very difficult thing for Spain.
0: That was where all the treasure was coming in from the Americas? That's
2: correct. What ships from the Americas brought
0: were all the treasures plundered from places like Mexico and Peru? It was part of this complex system of world trade, including China, which helped keep Spain rich and powerful. But it's not like England wasn't powerful as well. People look back at this these days as kind of a David and Goliath battle. You know, little England against big, scary Spain. But it was a bit more Goliath and Goliath.
1: I think it's Goliath and Goliath. By the time you get to the Armada, both nations have fine big navies and have had them for... century or more
0: there were all sorts of maneuvers between spain and england but even the most dramatic fighting like where drake famously destroys some spanish ships by sailing a burning boat at them that only sinks about five or six ships what devastates the spanish fleet after a battle later on near england is when they just get out manoeuvred and they have to sail around the top of scotland way up north just to get home
1: and it really was just Bad luck for the Spaniards that the winds blew them off course and took them round up the top and round to, around towards the Atlantic. The loss of men and ships and, as they say, treasure in these basically sea-based battles in the 16th century, 15th century too, is horrendous to contemplate. That's why it's so remarkable when only five or six ships are lost ...by the English as opposed to the vast proportion of the Spanish fleet.
0: And all through this period of conflict, culminating about 1588... ...we still don't really know what Shakespeare was doing.
1: Is Shakespeare doing anything to support his team... ...as far as the actual battles against the Spanish are concerned? Short answer, I don't think so. I get the impression that Shakespeare maintained... ...enough of that wonderful Midlands bourgeoisie... ...to use an anachronistic word to protect himself and not get involved in exciting adventures, whether soldiering or spying or politicking in any way.
2: That's not something that seems to bother Cervantes. He, he started to collect money for the Armada, and later on, in 1595, he becomes a full-time job, especially in southern Spain, in Granada.
0: After the Armada, Queen Elizabeth in England dies. Her successor, James I, seemed eager to make peace with Spain. By 1604, a peace deal is ratified in England. In 1605, that same deal is ratified in Spain at Valladolid, the new location of the Spanish court. Information travels slow. You had to do this with ambassadors going physically from place to place. Cervantes' career tries to keep up with all the new fashions of the time.
2: When he returns from his military career, Lepanto and all these things, his drama plays are not being appreciated as they were before. So he looks around, people say that he's a really bad poet. What can he do? He was fiction. He thinks it's the only genre that he can definitely excel. The important thing in this period is that he went to jail, and he learned a lot about the experiences there. He learned about the language and all these things that we see in Cervantes' Picker's novel. Then the court of Spain moved from Madrid to Valladolid, and he followed the court. And between 1609 and 1605, probably he wrote Don Quixote. He probably started Don Quixote in Valladolid. 1605, the first part of Don Quixote, was very successful, definitely, you know. He had some issues in Valladolid too. There was a dead man at the door of his house, and he was sued because of that. And, you know, in a way, we can say that the last 15 years Cervantes' production from El Quixote on were at limit. Even though he was a great author, the conditions in which he wrote his fiction and tried to have a career with so much resilience, he went to jail. He went through all the things that you can imagine that can make a person just throw the towel. But he didn't. He continued and he wrote the second part at the end of his life and he published his drama play. He published Persilis. He published The Trip to El Parnassus in the last three magic years of his life. Even just as an example of resilience is just a model of how to live a life. The amount of work he produced in his last years of life, I think he would be fulfilled. He would have felt as a person who has fulfilled his career.
1: Shakespeare is not an adventurer of the body in the way that Cervantes was. He's an adventurer in the mind. I don't think it matters at all. I think what we have with Shakespeare, and we have the evidence of 37 plays, this man had the most extraordinarily fertile imagination and a sort of generous imagination. He can imagine himself into the lives of other people in whatever circumstances they are. Shakespeare was a massive success. He was far and away the best money earner of the playwrights of this period. I mean, he goes from writing those plays, those great tragedies, in the first decade of the 1600s, and you get to the last great plays, which are beautiful romances of reconciliation and rediscovery of lost love and things like that. doesn't sound like the work of an unhappy man to me.
2: I think at the end of his life, his most important work would be Persilis. It was published after he died. In his opinion, Persilis was the thing to read.
0: And it sounds like Shakespeare and the Tempest, that it's a final piece that's a metaphor about his life and work.
2: Yeah, Absolutely, and this is a very good connection. And I think the Tempest and Persilis are very much related because they are both kind of fantasies. They are somewhat utopian. Maybe the Tempest is more utopian than Persilis, but Persilis in some way is a trip through different utopian or imaginary lands where they're barbarians, they have different customs. It's like a catalogue of adventures in order to show people how to have an exemplary life.
0: Persily's The Tempest. It seems like a bit of a weak connection. But there's also a much clearer link between these two authors, which we're going to tell you about in our next episode. But that episode is a mini-episode, and it's ready now. You can go listen to it right after listening to this one. Just skip ahead in your podcast feed. Two Chiodes is produced by Paula Yul. It's presented and edited by me. I'm Zasha Rosen. Made by the Instituto Cervantes in Sydney. Music in this episode by Rosie Catalano, Chris Zabriskie, Valela Valela, and Rafay. See the episode notes for full details. Keep listening right now for our next episode.
2: Cervantes and Shakespeare. And Fletcher.